iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Will Kelleher and you're listening to our special series examining just what it takes to win the Rugby World Cup in the company of those who have been there and done it. We'll take you from 1987 to 2019 through the eyes of great world champions ahead of the 10th World Cup in France this autumn. We'll hear their memories and stories, anecdotes and insights, all with the goal of answering one simple but devilish question. How do you win the World Cup? So join us on a rugby journey to whet your appetite for France with Legends of the Game. This time on how to win the World Cup, it's the Wizards of Oz. The Wallabies are waltzing world champions twice in three attempts, winning in 1991 and 1999. 91 sees the end of the Cold War and the start of the World Wide Web. Michael Schumacher makes his Formula One debut as Brian Adams stays at number one for 16 weeks with everything I do, I do it for you. In the Five Nations, England have secured the first of back-to-back Grand Slams and the World Cup comes to the British Isles and France for its second edition. David Campese dazzles for the Australians with six tries as they pass Ireland and New Zealand to meet England in the final. The English switch away from a forward-based tactical plan at the last minute, goaded by the Aussies, and the Wallabies beat them 12-6 at Twickenham. By 1999, the South Africans are world champions from 95, and rugby union has been a professional sport for four years. As Manchester United secure the treble, Tracy Emin forgets to make her bed, and the Euro currency launches, the Millennium Stadium is opened in Cardiff in time for their World Cup. New Zealand are fancied for the title again, but they're stunned by the French flair in the semi-final, the Wallabies taking advantage and lift the World Cup again. Part of both victories was line-out winning, goal-kicking lock, John Eels. So, from the Times and the Sunday Times, this is a Ruck special. How to win the World Cup with John Eels. So, John, fantastic to have you on this special Ruck podcast. And we always start with the easiest question of all. It's the title of our podcast. How do you win the World Cup? John Eels. <laughs> well, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, just a sentence, that one, I think. No, look, I, I think I, I was very fortunate to be a part of two World Cup winning teams. And, uh, you know, the first one happened to be the first year I played for Australia. So timing is everything in life. And uh, that was one there was where there was this great intersection of where I came into the team and, and I came into a team that had been maturing, had been through a lot of tough times and and was ready to compete for that World Cup. And second one was closer to the end of my career. So you know, it was two pretty good ways to, uh, two pretty good moments in my um, 
No, 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 in my career, but in my life, for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's try and find some sort of answer by the end of our chat, but why don't we start with a bit of context for 91 to start with. So, second edition of the World Cup, obviously, after 87, which New Zealand had won. Um, the whole concept, I suppose, was fairly new for you guys. Did you go with a sort of clear intention that you were desperate to win it, or what was the psychology leading into it for you guys as the Wallabies? Absolutely, and we, you know, we really felt we had a good build-up. We knew we had a good chance. The Wallabies were a team, as I mentioned. Like I, you know, the first World Cup in '87 was was in my backyard. I, I didn't get to any games, but I watched most of them. And uh, the the build-up to even having a World Cup there was huge in my life. I was like, I love rugby. I love cricket, and they were probably the main sports I followed. And and hearing that there could be a Rugby World Cup, and then all of a sudden you're you're playing in a Rugby World Cup in the second edition of it, uh, was quite extraordinary in my life. And it all happened so quickly. But coming into a, a team that had been through some tough times, but was starting to shine, starting to put together some good form, starting to beat the best in the world, and potentially with some consistency, the expectation was that we would win it. And it would have been disappointing to go home in any other way. But you also know, while the expectation is to win it, that you can you can play the best you can possibly play and be and be beaten. That's sport. That happens. So obviously, still the amateur era, but you were very young, as you said. So, what did you have to stop doing to go and play the World Cup? Were you a student? Were you doing a day job that you had to quit and say, "I need a couple of months off to go up to Europe"? Yeah, I was a student. I was coming to. I think I just finished, you know, my Bachelor of Arts degree, and uh, so I hadn't actually hadn't formally started work at that stage. I think I. You know, up until that point, I was working in bottle shops and pubs and uh, mowing lawns and and whatnot. So, traveling on a rugby trip was a relief for me. It was uh, <laughs> it, it was great. Yeah. So, how was the travel? Was it still quite um, I don't know last minute and all that? How was the preparation? I've heard that it was one of the first times you guys would have flown business class, came via America. Was that right? Yeah, I think it was Southwest Airlines or North. Northwest, maybe Northwest Airlines, I think, sponsored us. Okay, yeah. Um, it's going back, going back a few years now. But um, they, uh, yeah, they came on board as a sponsor. So we had to go via the States. But the, the great thing was, you know, we were able to travel business class. So everyone was was thrilled with that. I'd certainly never travelled at that end of the plane before. And uh, <laughs> Helps with the long legs, surely. Yeah, it certainly helped. certainly helped. <laughs> it was only my second trip to the UK. So... Um, I'd been the year before on a on an emerging Wallabies tour and we went through the UK and parts of Europe. So it was exciting to be heading back over there and and with a genuine chance uh, of, of winning the World Cup. So we stopped over a couple of days in the US and I always remember our main sponsor at the time was Forex and uh, and we had all the you know, signage all over our bags. And we noticed that a few people were looking at our bags while we were over there and stuff. And, and what we hadn't taken into account, apparently Forex at the time was a brand of condoms in the US. So they were wondering <laughs> who is this team being supported by Forex. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure of the truth as to whether it was or not, but that's what someone told us. <laughs> so when you arrived, I guess you would have come into Heathrow or wherever, because it was the second issue of the, of the World Cup, was it all quite low-key? There probably wasn't loads of... I don't know, hype around it, maybe around Europe or what you'd get at the moment of marketing and banners and all the pressure of social media and stuff didn't all exist then. So was it fairly low key when you got to Europe? 
I think when you compare it to today, it was low key. But when you take into context that you're this a rugby team, you you desperately want to play for your country. You want to play in a World Cup. You want to win a World Cup. There was nothing low key about it from that perspective. The you know there was there was no difference in the anticipation we had going to that World Cup as we had going to '99 or '95. But I suppose it, it was a World Cup that definitely built as it went through. And the fact that the host nation were in the final on their home ground certainly helps in the you know the interest that there is in a World Cup. So so the intensity did build as we went through the tournament. So despite the fact that you guys would have come in with the, the great intention of winning it, you might, might not have been the, the favourites because I suppose England had won a Grand Slam in the Five Nations and would win another one in 92, didn't they? Scotland had won a Grand Slam in 1990. New Zealand were the world champions. I think they'd just won, well, they'd beaten a few teams around the, the world too. So where did you sit in your mind in the pecking order or maybe everyone else's? We felt we could beat all those teams. Yeah, we went over there, and you know what? What a favourites you get. Ban- they, the favouritism gets bandied around every now and then. But in our mind, we knew we were a chance of winning it. So it probably didn't matter whether others considered you favourites or not. If anything, it probably takes a little bit of pressure off when you know you're up against a home country because they will be feeling pressure to perform at home. The All Blacks would always be feeling pressure and they weren't performing as consistently as they had probably not long before that. They had made a couple of changes around their leadership, which had been probably unsettling for them, you know, moving from Buck Shelford to Gary Wetton uh, at the time. So those things don't help when you're going into a World Cup campaign. And we were able to probably be under the radar a little bit there in in, in some ways, which which probably helped. And yeah, the four teams you mentioned were the the four that ended up making the semi-finals. Yeah. So, you know, it could have been any of those four teams get through. Yeah. And your pool, let's so they they split them up for people that don't remember that tournament. Pools in different countries basically around the British Isles and France, didn't they? So, you guys went down to Wales. So, absolute rugby heartland played in some old ground, Stradley Park, Pontypool Park, Cardiff Arms Park in the pool stage. What was that like for you starting a World Cup playing all those games down in Wales? Yeah, certainly uh, there was a lot of intensity about it. Our first game was against Argentina from from memory. And, um, you know, Argentina are always a difficult team to play. At that stage, you felt that with our team at that point and their team at that point, you felt that if we performed throughout the game, we'd get away with it. But they're always threatening. Um, And then we played Samoa and Samoa was, I think we ended up winning 9-3 in terrible conditions. Down at Pontypool Park, yeah. Yeah, and um, and yeah, probably one that could have got away on us. We, we could have easily lost. And then we started to perform a bit better when it came to the the, the Welsh Test at um, Cardiff Arms Park. But it's it doesn't matter who you're playing in a World Cup. You know you've got to turn it on. You know it's going to be difficult. And the thing about a game like rugby, even if you end up, the scoreboard may end up looking like you had a relatively easy win. The game is still always hard. And mm. if you're not up for that very tough contest, then you could find yourself in a difficult situation. So th- these days, obviously, there's quite long gaps between games and things like that, and but it's so super pressurised and so much training and stuff like that. But away from the match itself, were you able to get out and about? Or was it still quite, was it sort of professional with a small P at that stage? Or were you able to, I don't know, go to the pub, play golf? Did you get stopped around the place in Wales? How did that go for you guys? 
Yeah, we definitely did all of the above. <laughs> I think, um, you know, golf, pubs, you know, and, and in those days it was a lot more relaxed and you'd even have a drink in the lead up to the game. Like, you know, not the night before, maybe not a couple of nights before, you know, before the bigger games, but it was nothing to go to the pub for a couple of drinks a few nights before and um, and definitely after every game. Yeah. You know, it's more controlled and measured now, but... But even with that, you did train very hard. Like you put a lot of focus in. You know, we only had 26 players with us in the squad at that World Cup. Mm. Um, and two of those guys you know, didn't get to you know, run on the field during the tournament because it was very different. You weren't allowed to run reserves on unless people were injured. So to go through you know, that World Cup, play six games uh, with 24 people, mm. you know, was, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty tight and you're pretty you know, you've, you've, you've put in a lot of effort by the end of it with all the training sessions. Yeah. So, as you mentioned, you beat Western Samoa 9-3 and they had beaten Wales. So when you then beat Wales the, ne- the next game, very convincingly, 38-3, you knocked them out, basically, didn't you? So at, in Cardiff Farms Park. So that must have gone down like a lead balloon over in Cardiff. Yeah, no, I don't think we're too popular there, but it's... <laughs> you know, it was amazing, even though we are expected to win and Wales were going through... a pretty tough time we had beaten them by a lot in australia earlier that year and that was my first test it's still a test match and it's at carter farms park you imagine i was 21 at the time you know someone if anyone had said to me two years before even that one day you're going to play at carter farms park i would have said it's not happening <laughs> yeah i'm not sure you know, what game that that will be but then all of a sudden you're playing for your country at carter farms park it's pretty pretty special so when among yourselves did you really start believing then when it could be done so you get through the pool and then you move to Ireland for the a couple of knockout games and Ireland in Ireland is the quarterfinal and that one was was a tight one it was a nipper wasn't it incredible game and you know again a game we we're expected to win but Ireland you know was such a difficult team to play and they, they always were through through my career and even when they weren't considered one of the top teams in the world, they, they were always very difficult to play. They were very physical. They found ways to stop you getting rhythm in your game as much as they created rhythm in their own game. And and that day was one of those days where we seemed to score, be on top of it, and then all of a sudden we're behind and uh, could be knocked out of the, the tournament. I remember so clearly that day the the composure of Michael Liner. Uh, Nick Farr Jones was our captain. He was off the field injured. Michael, when they scored the try, he just pulled us all in together. First went to the referee, said, "How long to go, sir?" And you know, found out there was two or three minutes to go. Pulled us all in tightly and basically just laid laid down the law. He just said, "Okay, guys, we, if they kick this goal, we're going to be three points behind. We're not going to go for a draw. We're going to go for the win. We want to kick the ball deep. We want to force them to kick into touch. We want to play this move off the line out. And um, we we didn't score off the line out, but we were able to affect a scrum. And then and then the, they, they played another move. We had the scrum, played a move, and even to the extent that Michael scored the try himself in the corner. Yeah. Yeah, we, we got out of jail that day. There's no question. But you're going round the British Isles puncturing balloons, aren't you? You're beating Wales in Cardiff and knocking them out. You're beating Ireland at Lansdowne Road. And the, the word was that it was pretty silent when Michael Liner went over. What was that like? I mean, you're breaking dreams all over the place around the British Isles. Yeah, I mean, the Ireland one was dramatic. I, I think they were going to a World Cup semi-final and they, they were there all but for that those the final moment of those those that game and um 
I, I think what we did notice really, and it was one of the great things about rugby is the sportsmanship of the whole community. Uh, you know, the Irish people got behind us the next week against New Zealand. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure Australian supporters would have been as charitable, but I think there was a bit of Irish logic in it as well, thinking, well, if we only lost here by one point, if you go on and win the World Cup, we've come second. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, we uh, yeah we just really enjoyed that great spirit of the Irish after that, and we felt a lot of support yeah. the following week against the All Blacks. Whether we had it or not, whether it was in our minds or not, we actually genuinely <laughs> felt it. And there was a lot of well wishes from Irish supporters next week. Disappointed Irish supporters. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. It was a wonderful place, and I, I think it is one of the great things about our game that that the supporters are special and they, you know, they get behind and embrace yeah, embrace the, the the tournament as a whole. Mm. So I'd I'd love before we get onto the semi and the final, I'd love to ask you about two players, and I know it's hard to single out individuals in World Cup winning teams. But firstly, let's go for David Campese. I think he scored six tries across the tournament. It was right in the middle of his prime form, wasn't he? Yeah, and uh, Campo, you know, was a. I mean, he first played for Australia. I think in might have been about eighty. Was it eighty two? I, I can't remember exactly, but it was. Yeah, he came in the team at a very young age and captured the imagination of 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 Australia and and, and of young people like me. Um, I loved watching the Wallabies, and every time Campo touched the ball, it was exciting. And so you get to play with someone like that. And and the first thing you notice about Campo was that I mean, people say a whole range of things about Campo, but no one trained harder than Campo trained. No one was more professional than he was in his approach to playing the game. He was always prepared when he ran on that field. It meant a lot to him to play for Australia and he worked incredibly hard. And he was never in better form than he was at that World Cup. And there was this sense that, you know, if you look at the game against Argentina, he scored a couple of, yeah, at least one try, maybe he scored a couple or set, set some Two, up. Two, yeah. Yeah, two tries in that game. And, and it was really a lot of individual work in those tries. And he was always creating space. You just felt better when Campo was in form and you felt that if Campo plays well, we're going to play well. And if we play well, we can win the World Cup. And and he came to the fore at some really crucial times in that tournament, none more so than in that semi-final against New Zealand where, number one, he set up a Tim Horan try, mm. which to this day I'm sure anyone knows exactly how it happened. <laughs> and um, And then number two... He uh, he scored that try himself, running across the field. Yeah, yeah. The, the other bloke I'd love to talk to you about is Willie O, Willie Offingawi. Mm. Um, only more on the quarterfinal because I've I've spoken to Simon Poydevan, your number six for that um, World Cup before, and he said he, he remembers that the the Ireland game started with a pretty serious fight where Willie O sorted out a few of the Irish early on, and he was like, "You can't pick on Willie O. That was a bad move." Yeah, Willie was a really quiet bloke, very decent guy, very religious, but you didn't want to poke the bear. He stood up for himself and he stood up for the team. And he was so, like, he, he was that player who, you know, Bob Dwyer used to talk a lot about the X factor and having someone who could just do those extra things in the game that were just world-class that were hard to stop and Willie was one of those guys well whatever gods you were praying to it worked because you beat New Zealand and then it was the last balloon to puncture was beating England at Twickenham and you did obviously that's why we're here but talk to me about the thing that the English always say is that we changed our game plan before the match the forward dominated English Campo said they were boring and they said right we'll try and beat you the <laughs> other way and it didn't work 
Talk to us about it from your perspective. Was that about right, do you think, or not quite? Well, I think the the way we looked at England and, and certainly in the past, not so much now, I think there always have has been that great divide. The Northern Hemisphere is more stodgy. The Southern Hemisphere throw the ball around. And, you know, I don't, I don't think you even then you couldn't divide the rugby world like that. England had incredible capability in that back line. You just had to look at it. And they had it in the forwards as well. You know, by by throwing it around a little bit more perhaps than they had, it didn't mean they ignored the forwards. You know, they still, they still, it was still a very tough game through the through the forwards as well. Look, we played them earlier that year in, in Sydney and I think we scored 40 points to 15 or something like that. It was a lot closer than that. We knew it was going to be. I don't think they threw the game away. I don't think they were they were cajoled to play in a in a way they weren't capable of playing. They had that capability. Um and it was a game that could have gone either way right to the end. Yeah. And you guys won twelve six and that was it. And you got the trophy from the Queen at the end. That's slightly surreal as a young bloke, first World Cup given bill by the Queen. It was incredible. I mean we got before the Wales game we met Lady Diana. Okay, yeah. Um you know, I was I was meeting people like Daly Thompson <laughs> yes. over there. Like, yeah, you know, I was a I was a real student of sport. Loved watching it. You know, particularly the Olympics and rugby and cricket were, were the things I I watched as much as I could. And um, and so Daly Thompson, yeah, you know, he was the best athlete in the world, and he's coming along and saying hi to the team at one stage. And and then you're meeting the Queen is presenting you with the trophy. I mean, for, as a as a kid growing up in Australia who two years before that was playing Colts rugby, under 19 rugby in, you know, for Brothers, his club in Queensland. Yeah, that's a that's a big step in a couple of years. It was pretty amazing. Just a bit. So h- how were the celebrations then? Was it straight back on the flight or did you have a chance to get out on the town around London? No, we definitely enjoyed ourselves. I think we stayed at the Penny Hill Park Hotel yeah, okay. or somewhere like That's and where England are still was- based, yeah. Right. And we went back there and all the celebrations were back there that night, a well, a well-organised party. And then I went and visited some, uh, some relations in Italy. My mum was born in Australia, but both her parents were born in Italy and came out. So I went and stayed with them for, you know, 10 days. And I remember being over there at one stage and got the phone call and they said, oh, look, John, we're having a ticker tape parade back in Australia. Can you get, can you get back in time for that? And it was a couple of weeks after the end of the tournament. You know, I think none of us wanted to go on it. We were worried that there was going to be no one. We're going to be driving in these cars along the streets of Sydney. There'll be no one there to watch us. But thankfully, I got back for it because it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life, driving along the streets of Sydney. You know, the streets were lined with fans. And, you know, rugby, when we went over, um, and you talked about the low-key nature, and it probably was reasonably low-key in Australia in particular because rugby wasn't a mainstream sport then, but it really, that tournament captured the imagination of the Australian public as we went through. And and it was quite extraordinary. You, we had a sense of that, but none of us realised how big it was until we got back into the country and, and really felt that support. It was quite, quite extraordinary. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop... iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. 
So why don't we spool on to 99 then? So the gap in the middle, South Africa win their home World Cup, but you guys in 99 do it again for some of you. You were obviously the captain in that, that World Cup. So what changed for you? Because clearly the first one's your first World Cup, you're 21, but this time you're the captain, you're leading the team, you're back up in Europe again. It's normally the Welsh World Cup, but it's played all over the place, isn't it? What mm. challenges came with captaining a side at a World Cup? Uh, I suppose one of the challenges I had that year, I was injured all through the domestic season and missed six months of rugby. So for me, it was a matter of coming back and then there was the uncertainty of coming back. Will will I be able to get back? I had hurt my shoulder. Will will the shoulder be strong enough going into the World Cup? And so I only played, I think, in the end, maybe two two games in the, maybe there's three games in the lead up to that tournament, you know, club Maybe I think it was only two actually, a club game and a um and a uh, a game for the Australian Barbarians before mm. the team was picked to go overseas. So partly in my mind it was, you know, I've got to work really hard to get back to match fit conditions here. But then you get over there and you're captain and and you've got to focus not only on your own game, but then it's on the team game and the strategy and the you know, the plans and, and the attention that would be focused on the team. So I think we went over, we are a mature team by then, a team that had gone through some tough times, had worked our way back. We'd had a really good season in 98 and we were building on that going into the 99. One thing I've read about the tactical call, I suppose you guys simplified as keep them nude, no tries. Is that yeah. right? And that you only conceded one throughout the whole tournament. It was an extraordinary effort. I suppose our goal wasn't necessarily to do that from the start of the tournament, but it uh, as it built, we you know we worked very hard defensively. You know, sometimes teams are going to score or not against you, but it, it became a bigger and bigger thing through the tournament. We had a guy by the name of John Muggleton who had played rugby league for Australia and had coached rugby league and had coached at the Brumbies in rugby, and Muggo was brilliant at being able to communicate to to take a a complex scenario, simplify it and be able to communicate it and create drills that would communicate it and, and embed it within the team. And I think that enabled us to get ahead of the game as far as our defensive patterns of play were concerned. Yeah, and you did pretty well through the, the pool stage, beat Romania, beat Ireland in Lansdowne Road again, USA, comfortably Wales as well. And then it was South Africa went to extra time in the semis. Was that the one... There's always one, it seems, sort of squeaky bum time moment, isn't there, in the World Cup? Was that your one? Yeah, without a doubt. And, well, I suppose it was that then leading into watching the semi-final the next day. I mean, the, the, the semi-final we played in, going through extra time and no tries being scored in that game at all, but just the composure we showed, I think, going into that extra time. And, and if, if my memory is correct, I think South Africa might have scored first in that extra time. Mm. Then we scored, then Stephen Larkham kicked the goal and then Matt Burke uh, kicked another goal after that to put a six ahead, if I'm correct. Yeah, 27-21 um, ended. Yeah, and and it felt like even though there was no try scored, it was a very entertaining game, that one. And it was, you know, really just went from you know, end to end in some respects and very tightly contested. And then the relief of getting through that and spending the night in London then driving back to Wales the next day planning how we're going to play against the All Blacks in the final <laughs> and then sitting down together and watching that that incredible semi-final, whereas I think the All Blacks might have been ahead by 12 or 14 points at half time, and then the French ended up winning by 12 points. Yeah, It was 
quite extraordinary to watch that. And I remember at the end of the game as we were watching it, you know, you you watch it a little bit impartially, but you you realise that you're wondering who you're going to be playing the next week. And, of course, not many people wish that they play the All Blacks in a (laughs) World Cup because you know it's going to be hard. But um, by the end of that game, I remember David Wilson, you know, calling it out and saying, well, guys, look at what the French have just done to the All Blacks. They can do that to us. Yeah. And it was just that sobering reminder that the French can do anything. Yeah. And when they can do anything, they can beat anyone. And and so we had to go back to the basics. We had played the All Blacks so many times in the previous years. We hadn't really played the French all that many times. And so we had to go back to the basics and really assess. You know, the, the, the video analysts were, were up all night just cutting pieces of the, the French games yeah, so we could watch it the following day, um, following morning to analyse how were we going to play these this French team? How were we going to combat them? It was a matter of saying, what can we do? But what, also, what do we have to do to stop them being able to do to us what they did to New Zealand? Yeah. As it turned out, it's still a record, your win in the final, 23-point victory, only almost matched by the Springboks last time out against England. But so in hindsight, I suppose people would have said, oh, well, France played their final the week before. But did it not feel like that at the time? It never feels like that. And you go into the game. I remember that whole week. I wasn't sleeping well because your mind's racing. You mm. know that at the end of that week, you're either going to be a world champion or you're not. You know, it's binary. It's, um, and so your mind's racing. What are your tactics? What do you do here? Will you win? Will you not? And every time you think about will you win or will you not, you've got to push that out of your head and you've got to, you have to start thinking process. And it's a process which settles down the nerves and allows you to relax. But still, I'd I'd go to bed late. I'd, I'd wake up early you know, with my mind racing as soon as I woke up. I, I tried to keep a, you know, write down a lot of notes that week. And, you know, if I ever wasn't, you know, got, got in this, you know, in the, where there was a lot of thoughts running through, I'd just jot down different ideas and, write things down because I found that that would settle me down. But I knew I was never worried I was going to be too tired going into the game because, you know, it's a World Cup final. You're going to be up for it and you're excited about it. But um, with that excitement came this tempering of we're not sure what the French are going to throw at us. And Mm -hmm. it was a very, very physical game, very hard game. And you never, I mean, we knew we were going to win with about five minutes to go but it wasn't until about five minutes to go probably the Owen Finnegan try you felt that look you know we're far enough ahead here I don't think even the French could come back from from here and that was a pretty special feeling going to those final few minutes thinking we've won the World Cup. Just balling back slightly you mentioned a bit of physicality but to the point where you I think you said to the referee that look if if this continues early on we're going to walk off was was that accurate? Yeah, I think it was something like that, and yeah, we did front at the time, and but but also we wanted to put it behind us and and move away from it as well because you know the final once we were able to focus on the game and just move on and think about okay, yeah, we, we've achieved something pretty special here as a team. We've come from a team two years before this that were considered one of the worst Wallaby sides to being the best team in the world, and. We wanted to celebrate that and not worry about other things at that time. Yeah. So then 
how do the parties compare between 91 and 99? Both long flights home, and I've heard the second time the trophy got a fair bit of working over on the way back. Lots of pictures with people on the jumbo home, and lots of someone even carved the word Bill into it, did they? Yeah, I can't remember exactly but all of the <laughs> finer detail, but uh, but I know that you know the 91 and 99, the guys took it around the whole plane, it was full of champagne or wherever it might have been. and Guys t- took took it around the plane. Had, all the passengers had the chance to uh, hold on to it, raise it up, get a photo with it, have a drink out of it. You, know, you probably wouldn't do that these days, but uh, for a number of reasons. But um, it was it was quite amazing feeling. Like we were, most of us were on the the bus at six a.m. the next morning, so there was no sleep that night. And <laughs> six a.m. we're on the bus back to back to Heathrow to get a midday flight back to Australia. And was it the same atmosphere when you landed that you had in 91 ticket tape parades and it really, having done it twice, you were the first team to have won the World Cup twice at that point? Yeah, it was, it was exactly the same. And, and you had to remember that for, for a lot of the guys, it was their first time. So it was, you know, it was so special. I mean, it's like choosing between children, choosing <laughs> between World Cups, isn't it? Like they're, they're all special. Yeah, look, it it was real. I was really fortunate to be a part of, you know, two great Australian eras bookended my career, and I, I felt the transition in between, and the two lots of transition, transition from one era to another, if you like, but also a transition from an amateur game to a professional game. It was an experienced amateur winning in a World Cup as an amateur and winning it as a professional uh, was, you know, quite incredible, you know, to to have had that opportunity so summing up time we've got 30 seconds how do you win the world cup john eels there was a question we asked at the start what's what are your keys well the team that'll win the world cup will absolutely know how they want to play the game and and they would have worked incredibly hard at just being able to execute that plan expertly and they'll have confidence in themselves They'll have confidence in each of them as individuals. They'll have confidence in their teammates and they'll have confidence in their purpose and their plan. And if you can put all of that together, then the, and then the ball bounces your way every now and then, then you can win a World Cup. But this one's going to be so tight. There you go, a double World Cup winner, John Eels there from 1991 and 1999. And his key to winning the World Cup having a clear game plan and being able to execute it. Very much easier said than done, but that's how the Wallabies did it in 91 and 99. You've been listening to a Ruck podcast special, How to Win the World Cup. Like and subscribe, spread the word and follow the Times on social media at Timesport. And we'll have another episode for you soon. This podcast was produced by Alfie Reynolds. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone